Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 3, The Manual. My guest today is Dr. Nikte Mejia. Dr. Mejia is a movement disorders neurologist. She was born in Guatemala and went to medical school in Mexico. After completing medical school in Mexico, she came to the United States, worked at Baylor College of Medicine, and studied at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Mejia is an MD, has a Master's of Public Health from Harvard, and is a Fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. Dr. Mejia is an Assistant Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and is the Director of Neurology, Community Health, Diversity, and Inclusion, and the Director of the Department Community Health Improvement Initiatives at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Mejia, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Uh, please call me Nikte. Thank you, Nikte. Would you please tell me why you wanted to become a doctor? Sure. So I was born in Guatemala. I grew up partly in Guatemala and then in Mexico. And growing up in Latin America, I witnessed impressionable inequities as a child. And through school, I always thought I wanted to do something when I grew up that helped people. For many years, that meant education. As I grew older, it transformed into law. And when I was in high school, one of the things that I had to do was aptitude testing. And it wasn't until then that medicine started to come out. And I had the pleasure of being able to shadow a medical student at one Friday night. It blew me away. From that day on, I said, it's medicine, what I will do. Now, could you please tell me about some of your training and experiences? So I went to medical school in Monterrey, Mexico, at the Monterrey Institute of Technology. It was fantastic because of three things. One was that as medical students, we would rotate in different types of hospitals. Some were um, public-run hospitals for people who had basically no insurance, and some were somewhere in the middle. So, for example, we, we used to go to a hospital that was for teachers. You know, the teachers' union had a special set of health care benefits for their employees. So through medical school, you were constantly rotating through different specialties um, in different types of healthcare settings, and just thinking of the contrast. The other part, um, or the second reason I think the training there was out Canada and gone back to be part of this medical school. Um, so a lot of the textbooks we used were in English, and a lot of the physicians really encouraged us to broaden our horizons. And then the third part was that the school did too. So at the end of medical school, in that last year of six, contrary to here, you go from high school to medical school, so it's six years. In that sixth year, you had the opportunity to spend six months anywhere in the world you wanted to train, and you had to propose a program. In my case, I served a year in Suazua, Nuevo León, in the north of Mexico, very rural area, 
that was maybe an hour and a half away from the city. The town had 12,000 people. There were two community health centers, so there was someone on the other side of town who had also just graduated medical school. It was an amazing experience. It, it really shaped who I am as a physician today. I was in charge of running the community health center, and that included running the pharmacy, uh, running the finances of the clinical care that the dentist, the nurse, and I were providing. The most important thing, providing direct patient care. And I remember the breadth of, of what I did with very little resources partly preventive services. So we, for example, offered all sorts of vaccinations, partly um, treatments like management of chronic diabetes. I was also there living within the small health center and providing emergency care 24-7. One of the things that is really hard to erase from my mind is that being a physician in that community health center, seeing me cost the equivalent of a dollar then. Based on what you said, it seems that Mexico is committed to making sure that people get the treatment they need with very little resources. Like any system, it was not a perfect system, but it was a great system to ensure that the very basic needs of people were met anywhere, anytime. Through the health centers, there were nutrition programs. Some of these initiatives have been replicated in other countries because they were so successful. So little kids who were, um, you know, failing to meet their height and weight requirements would get special nutritional supplements for free. Anyone who needed contraception anytime could get it. There was a program for people to come get anything from condoms to oral contraceptives to getting an intrauterine device placed. If you thought you were having chest pain, you knew that there was a community health center there to help you. Um, so again, there were certainly limitations, but there were great aspects of it. I now find a contrast where sometimes people don't have the money at the time that they need help. And, you know, I wish I could have a magic wand and say, let's open that community health center door where not only will you be seen, but you will leave there with the medicines you need. I think that's a very interesting point, and I want to contrast that. So you come to the United States, you get your Master's of Public Health and write papers. You specialize in neurology. Can you tell me some of your experiences treating people now that you're in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. I'm a movement disorders neurologist. What that means is that most of my time, I provide care to people who have uh, diseases like Parkinson's disease. and whose movements have changed over time and progressively change over time. And sometimes other uh, basic functions like their memory and thinking change over time. I work at a large academic medical center. So in addition to working at an outpatient clinic, I see patients who are hospitalized in the ward providing neurology consultations to other clinical services. And I supervise trainees working 24-7, working in the emergency room. And when I think of Medicare for All, I think of some of the gaps and some of the challenges that patients and their families live day to day and how that vision has the potential of, of making life better for all of them. So could you please give me an example of a case where the patient couldn't get the cure or the treatment that they needed because of limitations. Yes, absolutely. 
Over time, people with Parkinson's disease develop inconsistencies in the response to the medicine. So they have something that we call motor fluctuations, where there are parts of the day that the medicine works great. There are parts of the day where it feels like even though they took it, it's not working. So there's a, a variety of medicines in the market now to help people have a more predictable, steady response to the medicine. Usually, so those are very expensive medicines that I find myself fairly often having to talk with insurance companies to try to approve these medicines and to try to explain why, yes, we've tried the other basic medication that you've been covering for a while, but that is not enough now and we need to bring a second medicine to help or we need to transition to this different medicine. And it is tough to see people having those up and downs in their day. Sometimes they're working, sometimes their grandparents were involved in their grandchildren's life and they want to be active. And it, it is really troublesome to to see how tough it is to go through, can that patient say it? And what can the insurance company provide it? And once the insurance company says yes, which not always happens, realizing how big of a copay people have. So sometimes even for a medicine seems to be the one that's helping fantastic, the copies are, are really something that are not sustainable. And then contrary what I had in mind coming to the U.S., we had to find plan B and often find plan C because, um, the, you know, the, the financial burden of those medicines that are actually supposed to be helping my patients that are out in the market, it goes beyond the ability to maintain that treatment plan. I live in a state where there's very few people who are uninsured, but I still every once in a while meet people in the emergency room primarily. So I can think, for example, of this person I met within the last year, came to the emergency room because they had had a seizure. And as a neurologist, as a place, a large academic medical center that has neurology residents 24-7, they were evaluated by our trainees underwent, um, you know, all the right tests that they needed to, to get in that emergency room. The diagnosis, the working diagnosis after having met him with trainees was that of epilepsy. So this was someone who, if you looked back, it had not just been that one seizure. They worked delivering pizzas, so driving a car, and that was another challenge. And what I remember from their presentation, they had ended up in the emergency room because they were uninsured. And the reason they were uninsured is that they had had a job that offered insurance through the Affordable Care Act through their job and lost that job in between cycles. And ended up in a place where he had still not had a chance to sign up for insurance again, was working part-time delivering pizzas, the only job he had found to support his wife and little newborn, but basically had no way of paying for the medicines that we thought they needed. And it was really stressful to navigate that. Here you are at a place where a diagnosis has been provided by a specialist and a treatment plan is being proposed but where there's no way to make that treatment plan happen easily because the person doesn't have the ability to pay for the medicine. It is really heartbreaking to see that in, in motion. And I have to say emergency room clinicians, the physicians, the nurses, the social workers, the case managers, they see this day in, day out. They make miracles happen sometimes. 
But sometimes really the system is just set up that even with the best efforts by excellent teams, we may not make those miracles happen. And, and it's a challenge. It's about people's lives, right? As a seizure can potentially kill you. And, and knowing that you have seizures and that there's medicine to help you not have a seizure, and yet that there's no finances to make that medicine available, it is heartbreaking to me. I find that heartbreaking too. And that's why I think we need Medicare for all. Nikkei? Earlier, you said that most people in Massachusetts have insurance. Do you spend a lot of time dealing with insurance companies? I'm smiling here, thinking of my assistant, who, between she and I, are on the phone so many times a week because of issues with insurance. Sometimes it's for a new medicine that we are introducing and that the insurance company may not want to cover. Sometimes it's for a test that I'm proposing and the insurance company needs to understand better why. Sometimes, and this one is really, I think, something that I have a hard time understanding, it's for a medicine that that insurance company has already approved for my patient. But because they're expensive medicines, every three or four months, they want us to go through the whole process over again. And not only is it challenging, thinking of the paperwork and phone time and all of that for us as the clinician and the administrative support staff in a practice, it is terrifying for patients that every few months, a medicine that was approved at some point, that they're taking, that's working well, every few months, we have to go through this whole dance again and kind of hold our breaths to see if they will approve it to be ongoing. And every time I have to fill out paperwork like that saying, actually, you know, you already approved it. <laughs> They're taking it. It works. Again, it blows my mind. Well, not only is that stressful for both you and especially the patient, it's a tremendous waste of resources. Yes. So there's many insurance companies now, as you know, and the marketplace continues to change. It's fascinating to me to see how different companies are set up. So sometimes we'll receive a denial by fax and they want some information faxed back. Sometimes they say, call this number. And usually the first person who answers has no clinical training and they may pass you on to a second or third person who usually, again, does not have clinical training. They're looking at you know an algorithm to see if it should be approved or not and it's denied. I often end up asking to talk with, to do peers, to peers, to talk with a physician to, you know, have a conversation of why my patient needs what I'm proposing. I was thinking of this a few days ago where there was a company that had not approved what I was ordering. I called to try to understand why. And when I asked to call to do peer to peer, they said, we don't have that. <laughs> and I could not believe it. What do you mean you don't have that? No, there's really no physician you can talk with. I had never heard of that. I just don't understand how that something like that can happen. But So there is inconsistencies, but I think the common theme is we as physicians and nurses and all of the support staff that we have spent quite a bit of our time on the phone or online or with the fax machine trying to navigate complex and different processes to get the right care for the floor patient. What it sounds like to me is that you have insurance bureaucrats who are deciding your health care. 
And these are often clerks who have no medical training. They're just trained to say, oh, it's too expensive. I think, unfortunately, yes, right now there's so many hoops for patients and clinicians to go through. And at the end, the answer can be no, and it can be a final no. And I think this is just wrong. There is bureaucracy, and it's bureaucracy that gets in the way of people receiving what they need for their health. I've also heard the argument, oh, it's just doctors wanting to have it easier. And it's really not about me. I think if you ask, just like I mentioned early on, I went into medicine to help others. Most clinicians, whether it's nurses or physicians or other allied health professionals, we came into our professions to help others. It's a service field. And this is about the patients and the families that we serve. Forget me being on the phone. I'm used to that by now. I've done it over a decade. I could keep doing it more decades. It is just so that dream of saying, I think you're the right patient for this medicine. And let's try it out and not have to worry, you know, having the families and patients focus on their health <laughs> and getting better and, and nothing else. So given your experiences in Mexico and the United States, what do you see as the main advantages of a Medicare for all system? Well, there's three parts. One, when I think of access to care, and you mentioned research, a lot of the research I do is around access to neurology care. One is patients who have symptoms could connect with clinicians who can help them get to the bottom of those symptoms and arrive to a diagnosis without having to think of where's the money going to come from. Whether it's seeing a specialist or getting the test that will help them get an answer to why they're not feeling well, I think that will happen more easily. Two, if there's someone who knows what they have but they need a treatment, they can focus on their health and not have to worry about how am I going to be able to afford this medicine or if I have savings and I'm using them for this treatment, how am I going to be able to afford my mortgage or may I end up bankrupt? Uh, most of the bankruptcies in the United States now are actually related to medical expenses. And then the third reason is, again, I care for a lot of people with Parkinson's disease, and that's a progressive um, neurologic disease that affects usually people in their later part of life, also certainly their younger patients. And because it affects people's mobility, sometimes there comes a point where a lot of them will need support either at home, different nursing supports that happen outside of their home. And there I struggled too, you know, the long-term care options that could potentially be woven into Medicare for All and which are actually embedded in some of the proposals that exist now, wow, that would be a breath of, of relief. Thinking of my patients who, for example, have Parkinson's and their spouse is working, but they need someone with them at home. I agree with you that Medicare for All needs to provide benefits for long-term care. Right now, as the system stands, most people end up paying out of pocket, and that can mean $30, $40 an hour in the state where I live. If you think about neurologic diseases, they are currently worldwide the greatest burden to shorter lifespans and disability. And diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, stroke, 
they're so prevalent and they're particular prevalent among minority communities who oftentimes may have more struggles financially. We have to think of long-term care. And again, it doesn't mean just older adults because there may be younger people who potentially need long-term care services too for other reasons. I think that's a really important part of Medicare for All that people don't often recognize is in some of these proposals. But long-term care, I've had patients tell me that people talk about Medicare for All. One of the sweet parts of it is that current Medicare could potentially be better. And I've heard patients tell me, you know, I've saved for Medicare. You know, in my check, they've taken money for Medicare for years. And I always assumed it would cover long-term care. I have had very painful conversations with my patients and their spouses about how many months they have left of savings. You're talking about people telling you, we can only sustain this for two more months and we don't know what we're going to do after it. It is heartbreaking. I can see why you feel that way. Nick Tay, before we end, is there anything you would like to add? This has been wonderful. I appreciate it. I think that one other comment I would make is that people sometimes forget that clinicians are also patients and that clinicians also get sick and have to deal with the insurance companies themselves for them or their family members. And I just have to say, I have been there as a human being that is not, you know, caring for patients. I knew there were problems, but this really took it home for me. Uh, When I had my second child, who's now four years old, I breastfed them initially, but then had troubles giving them what they needed to sustain the appropriate nutrition. So my pediatrician said she needs to take some formula and gave me a prescription for formula. Um, So I gave her formula, and within a day or two, she had blood in her stool, lots of blood. I was terrified. I showed up to the pediatrician in panic saying, what are we going to do? You know, I can't make enough milk. This new thing is giving her a big problem. And she said, you know, we need to try a different formula. The one she's taking, she may have troubles digesting it. So gave me a prescription to go buy something at the pharmacy. Immediately from the, you know, pediatrician's office, I go to, to the pharmacy and they say, well, first problem, you need a prior authorization. Second problem, we don't believe your insurance covers this. Um, we need $700 for the next few weeks of, of formula. And, you know, so began a process of my daughter's pediatrician and I appealing and talking with a lot of people in the insurance company to try to get that formula approved for my daughter, which eventually it was. But it wasn't after a lot of phone calls from both the pediatrician's office and I, as someone who knew the system, and letters from the pediatrician and I. And eventually, one letter that thinks that one of the people who answered the phones without the clinical training, they said, I see you've been calling a lot. Let me send you um, the manual to the policy that we have in place. And thanks to that person sending me the manual, I realized that they were supposed to be covering this formula all along. So my last letter to them said, page so-and-so of your manual, it states that formula is covered. And, you know, quickly I ended up 
with a year's supply of, of the formula that I was initially going to pay for thousands of dollars. I just wanted to share that to make a point that we all face this. It's not just a doctor or patient issue. It's, it's a people issue. I think as human beings, we have the right to health and health care. And, you know, we live in an amazing country that a few decades ago was creative enough to create Medicare and uh, support people who had worked through their lives to make this country what it is, right? So we have Medicare, and I'm thankful for Medicare. And I wish there were others who could benefit from a better, improved Medicare, regardless of age, regardless of the color of the skin, regardless of where in the country they live. Dr. Nikte Mejia, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. I appreciate the invitation. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.